imagine two homes on the same block in San Francisco, maybe two Victorians like you see pictured here. One is a family home that was passed down from one generation to the next. The family currently living in this home decides they need to move away because the cost of living in San Francisco becomes unsustainable even for their dual income family. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? They hope to rent out their home as they move to their new place to help offset some of their expenses living in another state in another city. The home next to them is purchased by a wealthy real estate investor who owns dozens of homes in the city. He buys it, fixes it up, and sets it on the market for rental income and a fair cost to their neighborhood. As they are seeking to find renters for their homes, these two homes next to each other, the, the owner of the first home decides uh, to talk to a family. They're contacted by this young family looking for a home. Uh, he was a little hesitant at first, but he decides to take this meeting with this family because they make a kind of a strange ask. Right from the get-go, they ask for a reduction of rent by 50%. They decide to meet and talk to them, and as they meet and talk, uh, this individual who owns this home passed down from family generation to the next empathizes with this family and decides to rent this home at a significant rate reduction of 50%. The owner of the second home is also contacted by a family looking to get into a home, but they also can only afford 50% of the rental ask. The owner's heart goes out to this family. He knows it's a bad business decision, but he could afford to wait longer if he really wanted to, to wait for a full price. But he decides to cut this family a break and rent it out also at a 50% reduction of rent. Both owners of these homes show incredible kindness in renting it out at 50% of the market value. Both homeowners give significant discounts. Both homeowners practice generosity and love. Which homeowner showed greater sacrifice? You would assume the one who does not own multiple homes in the area. The one who had to move away because their dual-income family couldn't afford to live in San Francisco anymore. It's easy to show love, kindness, and generosity when it doesn't really hit your bottom line. It's really hard when it requires sacrifice. Today, we can post things on social media, send money to causes, but how often do we actually act sacrificially in a way that costs us? I think we often settle for easy love because it's much harder to show sacrificial love. Think about how often we do things that make us feel good, and they do make us feel good, but actually don't cost us significantly, doesn't impact our lives and cause us to give something up for the sake of someone else? How often are we generous with time, energy, resources in ways that deeply impact the way that we live so that we cannot purchase something that we intended to purchase, so that we could not spend our time in ways that we intended to, in ways that deeply impact us? There is power in sacrifice. Jesus saves us through sacrifice. And it wasn't merely in the abundance of his time, energy, and resources. He literally gave everything at a cost deeply to himself. 
And he sends us as his people to live also sacrificially. And so how often do we settle for cheap love as his church rather than costly, sacrificial love? I believe Jesus wants us to be more than merely nice and kind and friendly, although we can certainly use more of nice, kindly, and friendly. I think he wants us to embrace sacrificial living. That's what we're going to look at today. That's what we're going to unpack. What does Christ-like sacrifice look like in his church? I want to unpack that by kind of digging a little bit deeper on two points to help us think about this. Uh, just a reminder of context, especially if you're just joining us. We've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians for a while. That's one of our patterns of our church. If you're new, we try and anchor primarily in one of the books of a testament in one year, and the next year will be in the other testament. And that's our commitment to try and preach as much as we can the whole council of Scripture. So next year, we're going to be in the Old Testament. Uh, but we're going to conclude 2 Corinthians. And if you're just joining us, Paul has been boasting about his weaknesses, which is a very strange thing, not only in his time, but also in our time, because most of the time when you're applying for a job, you don't tell your prospective employer of all your failures. You boast about your achievements, your accomplishments, and how much money you made for your company, how many in sales you actually accomplished. We boast in our achievements, in our performance. We boast in our reputation of the institutions we align ourselves in. But Paul says, in following Christ, we boast about our weaknesses. Because when we're weak, we actually can point to the strength of Christ working in and through us. Something very countercultural. The Corinthians, though, saw Paul's weakness, and he has lots of really difficult situations hit him. And this is a cause for doubting him in his apostleship and his love for them. And Paul continues to explain that his life, his choices reflect the way that Jesus is. He's trying to reflect sacrificial living. Sacrificial living, first, means being spent. It means pouring yourself out. It means actually giving of yourself so that there's a cost to your time, your energy, your resources. It actually impacts your life. It limits you. 2 Corinthians 12, 14 to 15. For he, the, and here for a third time, I am ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? These so-called, he's using it ironically, super apostles, were very impressive to the Corinthians because of their speaking ability, because of their backgrounds, and their impressiveness made them feel really good when they could pay them to be part of their payroll. It's like having uh, players on your roster who are very impressive. It feels really good to have a team where you can name impressive players on your roster. And Paul says to them, I'm not on your roster. I'm not going to accept your money. I don't work for you. You're actually my children. It's my responsibility to provide for you. And this is not just financial. He is spending himself for their souls. And I love that phrase, being spent for their souls. That's the heart of sacrifice. That's the heart of Paul's sacrifice. That's the heart of Christ's sacrifice for us, being spent for the souls of others. I reflected a lot about this uh, this week. 
with regards to leadership. And so let me unpack this for leadership. And this is certainly applicable directly to the pastors and elders of our church, to the staff of our church, to our community group leaders. This is certainly applicable to you if you have a leadership position in society, in your company. We often think of leaders as people who reach a certain level based upon performance or merit. And now, since they've reached a certain level, they can reap the benefits of their role. The Bible never describes leadership like this. The Bible regularly defines leadership as serving others by being last, by being low. Leadership, in Paul's word, is being spent for the sake of others, not others giving attention to spend on you. Paul is imitating Christ here. In Matthew chapter 20, James and John want to secure positions of power in Jesus' establishment of his new kingdom. And so they do what every power-hungry individual does. They ask their mom to help them, right? So they ask their mom, they want control. And so, mom, can you help us out? Can you advocate for us with Jesus? And so she goes to ask Jesus, will you make my sons the most powerful people in your kingdom when you establish it? The other disciples are angry. Not because they're angry about the audacity of their ask. They're probably angry because we should have asked our moms first. (laughs) Right? We should have thought of that. Listen to how Jesus responds. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as a son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Here's the point. In the kingdom of God, leaders put themselves in the low position. They don't lead from the high position. They spend themselves for the souls of others. And greatness in leadership is defined by sacrifice. The ultimate show of sacrifice is the cross, But even Jesus, he lived every moment of his life sacrificially. The night that he was betrayed, as you consider what he was doing, he washed his disciples' feet, knowing that he would go to the cross, even Judas' feet. He didn't just serve. He didn't just lead by loving those who liked him. He was impartial in his sacrifice. He served those who would fill him up and those who would betray him and abandon him. He serves people who would stick by his side. He serves the very people who would abandon him. This is sacrifice. Peter describes it similarly when he talks about elders in the church or leaders in the church. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock that is of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. Paul often says, imitate me, which sounds boastful if you just read it like that, but it's because his entire aim is to imitate Christ. And that's the role of any kind of leader in the church as we imitate the sacrifice of Jesus. The design of God's people, especially of leaders, is to imitate those who serve from the bottom, others. It's not hard 
to be kind and generous and loving as long as it doesn't cost you really anything. As long as it's giving out of your abundance. It's a lot easier to love when it costs us nothing. And so the question I think that Christ wants us to ask as Paul is demonstrating for us, as Jesus demonstrates for us is, how are we called to give sacrificially? What is hard for you to give? It may be that very thing that Christ wants to work on you in your heart in which you will become more like Christ in that. Maybe the, the gap of your discipleship, maybe there's a rut in your nearness to Christ as you're trying to follow him because what you're doing is doing cheap love, not costly, sacrificial love. Because that's where we get nearer to the heart of Christ. Maybe the call for us, that question we need to ask ourselves is, are you asking me to be sacrificial in ways I was not planning to? In ways that actually limit me, that restrain me, that cost me, but I'm being spent for the souls of others. What sacrifices is God calling for you to give? I think that's an important question we need to ask ourselves if we want to be near the heart of Christ, which is a sacrificial one. It's much easier to give. And as a and the saying that about my own heart, it's easy to give when it doesn't cost me anything, when it doesn't limit my buying power. It's easy to give him my time if it doesn't really take away from my vacation. It's really easy for me to give him my energy as long as I have enough for what I really want it for. But what if it actually cost me in ways that limited what I could buy, limited what I could do in terms of my time, and limited me in terms of my energy? What would it mean to give of myself sacrificially? Let me apply this to parents. I think it's important today as we bring our kids into worship today in unique ways, and we're doing that to intentionally remind ourselves as a church and to teach our children that this is their church, that we worship Jesus together, that we want to walk alongside them, that we're not always segregating them away for things and keeping them away because we don't want to deal with noise or different things. No, we love all of that, all the messiness. We want to be with them. And I want to apply this to parents and think about sacrifice for a moment. Because Paul is using a, a parental image here. He's saying, I'm like a parent to you. He wants to love them and spend for them and be spent for them like a loving parent does. Let me, let, me, let me talk about parenting for a second because this is one of the most joyful but sometimes the most painful things that we will ever experience. Children, well, my children, I know this, uh, and those of you thinking about your own parent, your own children, you will know this. Your children will always need a better parent than you can be. Right? That this, we, we know that, especially when we fail, uh, when we discipline out of anger, not love, when we realize that we've been doing something uh, that we thought was, and we even say it's for them, but it's really about us. Uh, maybe what you need to hear today, and maybe this encouragement for those of you wrestling with this, parental joy and challenge we have is maybe you need to hear that parenting can't save you. Maybe your expression of trying to do better is actually being pushed down to the next generation. Your parenting can't save you. But also maybe this other side you need to hear, your parenting failures won't condemn you either. Don't let Satan keep you in this shame loop. And that's what Satan likes to do. He, he's the accuser. He likes to keep you in this infinite shame loop that says your parenting isn't good enough. And you down this spiral down and that's what happens to us. Remember, your parenting failures don't condemn you. 
they will always need, our children, a better parent than we know we can be. And that's somewhat the way it's designed because what we're supposed to do ultimately is point them to the parent they ultimately need. Because what they need is more than just us. Our entire role, our entire role from every moment of time we get with our children is so that they would see more of Jesus. Parental sacrifice. What this means is, I think this is an important correction we need to think about in our church culture today. They need more from us than just safe, prosperous lives. No one of us will say it so crassly, but because of culture, because of the American dream, all kinds of things, I think we get stuck in this pattern of believing and functioning as if our primary task is to provide them safety, educational opportunity, extracurricular growth. And as long as we do those things, we've spent, and we spend a lot of money doing those things, don't we, as parents? That, that is the sufficient goal of our parenting. That's the sacrifice. We spend all that time, money, chauffeuring them around over and over again. Some of us understand that real parental sacrifice, not to disparage that. Some of you have made significant sacrifices of money, time, career. Some of you have moved to other countries for the sake of your children. Those are real, powerful sacrifices. What they need most, though, is the sacrifices where you imitate Jesus. To see Jesus in you. To see the sacrifices, not just for them. One of the reasons I think we have selfish generations coming up is if we do everything for them, what do they think the world's about? Them. What they really need to see is the sacrifice of Christ in you. I think we lose sight of that purpose. It's easy to fall in the pattern of living for the safety and glory and purpose of our children alone or to make our lives, trying to make them into something of a project. But our main thing as parents who love Jesus is to live sacrificially so they would see and believe the sacrifice of Christ. Kids don't just need good parents, they actually also need weak parents who need a savior, who see a savior that is stronger than them. They need to see a a parent who needs Jesus and then because of Jesus is compelled to live sacrificially in this life so they would see the sacrifice of Christ in our lives. Sacrifice or sacrificial living means being spent. In what ways is Christ calling you to be spent? In what ways as a parent, maybe some of us, are we not spending ourselves in ways that reflect the sacrifice of Christ, but really just is exactly like the world around us and we're producing people who are just going to do religious performance around us. Second, sacrificial living requires speaking truth in love. Speaking truth in love. I want to jump to the end of this passage, verses 19 to 21. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over those who have sinned. 
just because Paul cares deeply for them so that he's being spent for them does not mean that he's not willing also to speak directly to the issues that are harming them. Sometimes we think love means kind of not dealing with tough things. In fact, love means leaning into the tough things. Part of being spent on their behalf is to make sure he protects them in their hearts from falling from Christ. I think a lot of times people define the opposite of love as being hate. That's not true. The opposite of love is not hate. Actually, love, if you deeply love something, you will hate the thing that threatens what you love. So if you deeply love your marriage, you will hate the things that threaten it. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. It is indifference, not caring. So when you see videos of people being harmed and you wonder why are so many people video recording this but not intervening, that's actually hate because that's indifference. Or maybe it's safety because you're worried that they would also get injured, but indifference is the opposite of hate or opposite of love, sorry. Paul, in his sacrifice, is compelled not only to be spent for them, but to speak truth in love. He's not going to ignore the things that are harming them or keeping them away from Jesus. And as he speaks the truth in love, a couple things that were instructive for my own heart and maybe helpful for us. We always need to check our motivations as we learn to speak truth in love. It's very important that we look at ourselves and check our own motivations. Paul says he's not merely defending himself. He's speaking in Christ, which means that he's saying these hard things for their benefit. He's warning them of false teachers and their false gospel. If they're so easily deceived about Paul's authenticity, he's worried how much more easily are they going to be deceived about the things of Jesus? That's why checking our motivations is important. I think a lot of times, especially in public discourse or social media discourse, sometimes people think that being a Christian just means saying the truth and that inherently is loving, just getting the words out there. But there's a lot of ways to say things that are actually not loving at all that actually are about you and making yourself feel really good. And as someone who is, you know, regularly aware of his self-righteousness, I, I wrestle with that. I, I, need you to, I need to ask myself, am I being motivated by love as I say this true heart thing about someone else? Am I just looking to be right? Am I speaking this truth so that I would tear someone else down and lift myself up? Paul, he, he says, it, he's speaking in Christ. He wants them to hear these things so that their heart will be drawn to Christ. His motivation is around Jesus. Is that our motivation as we speak truth? Second, it doesn't hinder him from speaking honestly still though. As he checks his motivation, he speaks honestly. He doesn't skirt these sin issues. And I think this is a time when which we only know how to do that in anonymous ways on Twitter, but we don't really know how to do this in real life. And so we have community that ignores obvious sin that exists in our midst. And we just either ignore it or we justify it or we shove it under the rug and we just pretend to move on until some massive crisis or accusation occurs. That's why it always seems so surprising when leaders fail. 
It's because what ends up happening is not just one moment in time, but because there's a pattern in which we've stopped speaking to one another who know each other honestly, lovingly. We stopped speaking truth in love. Some of it is based in poor theology, I think. We, we lost this character of God that sees God's attributes as being held together. And so we start pitting the attributes against one another. So we, God is love. And so if God is love, it means he can't be holy. No, these are things are coexisting. God is consistently who he is in an identity at all times. And, but if we start pitting them against each other, we, we end up in all kinds of problems. And that's probably a theological problem that we have. Francis Schaeffer, pastor and theologian, said this, if we stress the love of God without the holiness of God, it turns out only to be compromise. But if we stress the holiness of God without the love of God, we practice something that is hard and lacks beauty and is important to show forth beauty before a lost world and a lost generation. He directly, Paul, speaks to the things that he's been dealing with throughout his various visits. Quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Do we proclaim a love of Jesus, but skirt the very sins that exist in our midst or in our own hearts? If we're going to speak the truth in love, we need to learn how to actually lean into those things in our own lives and in the lives of those we love. Otherwise, the very sacrifice that we say that Christ came to die for is not real unless we're willing to actually hold these things as really difficult in our hearts and things that we need to grow from. We can say all we need to grow in Christ, but what do we need to grow in Christ in? It is these very things that scriptures point out to us as a mirror, the very things that are, are plaguing us still because we still have to regularly put off the old self and put on Christ. Let me give you an example from my own life. Let me apply it to myself. Conceit, that's pride. And pride is one of those things that if you're a prideful person and someone tries to tell you you're prideful, you will never see it. It's a blind spot, right? Pride can only be seen because of the Holy Spirit and humility to see that you actually are a person that is full of conceit. And I am a person who wrestles with conceit. You know how I know? And it comes out in different ways for different people. I know because when things don't go my way, that frustration boils into anger in my heart. When things aren't done my way and I can feel it. And then it causes me to want to rein in control. One of the ways I've had to learn to push back against my own conceit and my pride is to take a posture, not of just doing to correct right away when things aren't done my way, but to take a posture of listening. To listen, to ask questions, to invite people to explain, to, to not jump to my own conclusions, to invite people who may actually even disagree or dislike me and ask them, how can I improve on this? That's how I fight back on my conceit. And every single time I ask a question or invite someone to speak into something, even though in my own heart I don't want to, it chips away a little bit more at my conceit. A little bit more. Sacrificial living requires us to be able to put sin to death in us, speaking truth in love where we need to. Maybe the question we need to ask ourselves is, where are you speaking to harshly? And some of you may be struggling with that. You, you see truth and you go right at it, but you do so in such unloving ways. And sometimes we do this with our children, right? 
right? We're trying to correct them. We know, and certainly we may even say this out loud. I know better than you. I've lived more life than you. We say things like this, right? But we, we are actually exacerbating, as Paul says in Colossians, we're exacerbating our children in cr- discipline. We're not actually speaking this truth, which is true in ways that actually are about Christ. We're maybe speaking too harshly or maybe the opposite side. You're not someone is harsh. You just avoid all the hard conversations that you need to have. And so you just hope and wait for a day where it just won't be a problem anymore. But actually what it does is metastasizes and grows and this cancer just grows and grows and grows. And then you see it not only grow in that relationship, it spills over, right? Because that's what sin does. It continues to take on, hold another part of your life and grow there again and again. Where are you speaking too harshly? Or maybe where are you avoiding difficult, tough conversations about sin? Maybe that's the conversation you need to have with yourself. That you need to just sit with God, allow his spirit, allow his word to just question you. That's a, that's a scary thing, isn't it? That's why silence, those of us who have not practiced silence in a long time, why it's so hard to sit quietly even for one minute. Because the longer you sit there, the more time you allow God to open yourself to things that you actually need to wrestle with. And if that happens, that's a good thing. That means the Holy Spirit, you haven't grieved it so much that you can actually hear him. That's actually a good thing. It's just painful though, isn't it? The longer you sit there. But maybe you're avoiding tough conversations with your own heart or maybe with someone that you need to deeply have that conversation with. Let me close though by reminding us that while Paul is a good example of sacrificial living and Jesus is the ultimate example of that sacrificial living, we don't just need examples. We actually need a savior. Because we can't just model ourselves attempting to do something that we know that we're going to fail in. We actually need not just someone to show us, we need someone to save us. And thankfully, we do find that ultimately in Christ. He didn't just show us sacrifice. He actually is our sacrifice. That's why Paul says in, earlier in this letter, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. He not only modeled speaking truth in love as he interacted with various people in his life, he himself actually is, as he says in John 14, the way, the truth, and the life. And if you come to him, you actually can come to the Father. It is because Jesus is our sacrificial Savior. That we can even begin to attempt to live sacrificial lives for his glory. To be spent for the souls of others. To speak truth in love so that the world may actually see who he really is. A perfect, holy, loving, merciful God whose love endures forever. Let's pray. And would you take this moment of silence to allow the Spirit to minister to you? Father, as we learned to pray earlier, to ask for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, I don't want just to be or I don't want just to lead people to be merely nice Father, we want, I want to be like Christ in sacrifice. So would your spirit 
work in us to cause us to to come to you where we need to confess and cling to the promise that you forgive us. May it cause us and compel us to see how great your love for us in Christ. So that as we consider our lives, all that you've gifted to us, all that you've privilegedly given to us to steward, that we would see that as an everyday, every moment opportunity to live sacrificially. I pray that that would change how we love one another in this church. Your spirit would cause a love to overflow so that there would never be any want or need because we would so sacrificially give to one another. We'd be so open and vulnerable with one another that our needs can be shared, that others rise up to the occasion to care. Father, may that spill over to our city and needs to see that you are alive. To see that the sacrifice of your son Jesus is alive and real. May it compel us to live sacrificially with those to which we don't owe anything, that may even dislike us or distrust us or actually hate. May it change how we interact with this city that needs to see you. We ask your spirit to do that work. Would you cause us to see Christ's sacrifice and compel us in his love? I cling to your spirit to do that work in us. In Christ's name, amen.